Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted February 10th, 2017, we talk with Manal Omar, Associate Vice President of the Center for Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. Her timely essay in the new WPJ winner issue is headlined, Partnering Up, how to work with religious leaders to counter violent extremism. We'll also point out other top features in the new winter issue, cover line interrupted, with a unique perspective provided entirely by female writers and editors. But first, this week's winners and losers report from Ian Bremer at Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. I'm in Central Park with the winners and losers French presidential scandal edition, Francois Fillon, loser. Can't have your family work on the public dole and not do anything? How about Marine Le Pen? Loser, believe it or not, she's taking a hit from 300K paid for the Front National uh, out of EU public funds. Emmanuel Macron, on balance, I'd say winner. Extramarital gay affair rumors in France, that's not really a problem. Could even be a plus. Benoit Hamon, uh, winner, no scandals, and he wants to tax robots in France. That sounds good right now. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Because the people in the communities where these people are, they know there's something off. They know there's something going on. They know there's something off with him, and they don't report them to the police. They don't report them to the FBI. Muslims, where they are, they have to report these people. Two questionable approaches to fighting terror. First, Donald Trump, as presidential candidate last June, blaming American Muslim leaders for failing to warn authorities about plots and plotters of which he insinuated they were well aware. Then a video from the Think Again, Turn Away campaign of the Obama State Department's Global Engagement Center, with English subtitles and arguably misplaced irony. Run, do not walk to ISIS land, they say, under images of men being whipped, shot in the streets, and thrown from a cliff, where you can learn useful new skills, blowing up mosques, crucifying and executing Muslims. The outrage of many Muslims and their leaders over Trump's indictment, even at that unofficial point, is well known, not to mention his later executive order suspending Syrian immigration and travel to the U.S. from six other Muslim-majority nations. But many experts on terrorism also have complained about the State Department videos as too smugly Western in orientation, even when they use only Arabic, too narrowly focused on the religious roots of violent extremism, counterproductive in highlighting the very images of butchery that generate ISIS recruitment. Those failings and what the experts say are better ways to mobilize religious leaders, their communities, and especially impressionable youth against terrorism's allure are addressed in the new WPJ winter issue by Manal Omar, Associate Vice President of the Center for Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. Her essay is headlined, Partnering Up, How to Work with Religious Leaders to Counter Violent Extremism, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Manal Omar, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Earlier complaints about the State Department's anti-ISIS videos led to a broader U.S. strategy for countering violent extremism, or CVE, including a role for partners on the ground and especially religious leaders. But many social justice and foreign policy activists are still rightfully wary, you report. Say more about their concerns. I think that the center concern that I have um, in talking about engaging religious leaders is how we actually engage, because I think it's absolutely essential to engage religious leaders. Uh, it's not only in terms of fighting violent extremism, but you know, social justice issues when they have engaged religious, religious leaders have really transformed movements. Uh, to give you an example that's tangible, if we look at the fight against AIDS in Africa, it wasn't until the churches really came on board that the messages had stronger traction. So whether it's health, whether it's you know, policy or something like violent, fighting violent extremism, religious uh, actors are absolutely essential. The challenge that we're seeing is that we're actually using them as instruments. We're instrumentalizing the religious leaders versus really partnering them with them, which is why I use the word partnering up, you know, to really engage with religious leaders, not just to puppet the messages we want them to send, but to ask them, how do we combat this? How do we actually design messages? So really at the very front end, asking religious leaders, engaging them, because they are, it's in their interest to really help fight violent extremism in whatever form it takes. Talk about what you call the inclusive agenda required to give CVE tactics a firm community base, starting with a message on the positive role of religion. You quote a co-founder of the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute. Yes. Um, Bree Lascota, who's based at the University of Southern California, is one of the partners I've worked with across the world, really, and you know, particularly focusing on youth through a program called Generation Change. Uh, and a lot of her background and her research is very much focused on religious leaders. And, and you know, the main issue that we often say is that whether it's domestically here in the U.S. or internationally, when you engage religious leaders, uh, you know, again, we know how religion can really mo mobilize the masses. So so why not trying to mobilize them to the messages that we would like to really be able to send? Um, and this is something that I've used, you know, f throughout my career. I mean, over the past 20 years, this isn't a new strategy to, you know, fight only ISIS. It's actually been a strategy, as I mentioned, um, that the World Bank employed in, th in terms of public health sector, but also for me using women's rights, uh, I've often had to turn to religious leaders because even if we change the laws, it really is the behavior and the attitudes that people are approaching it with. And and the best way really is kind of from the moral high ground, using the religious leaders to re-emphasize messaging for positive change. Well, and you've, you've mentioned now the, the crossing of paths of religious leaders and more secular, non-religious factors uh, or problems that you're trying to work with, economic and social, uh, that lead many recruits to ISIS. Correct. I mean, I think what's happening is you're seeing a lot of um, the recruits, or at least the ones that we've been able to, you know, interview and to um, interact with, are really highlighting um, issues that relate more to social justice than just religious ideology. Um, so depending on where you are, because, you know, obviously ISIS is very strategic and tailors its messaging. So if they're, mess you know, if they're trying to get recruits to go to Syria, it's a very different messaging than, for example, the Sahel, if you're looking at Mali. So, you know, the way they're tailoring their messages often 
often really goes to a root grievance that affects a community. Um, so for example, what you often find with Boko Haram and with extremist groups that may be rooted um, in Nigeria or around Nigeria is an emphasis on corruption. Uh, when you look at the Middle East, the emphasis tends to be the Syria conflict. In the old days, it used to be the Arab-Israeli conflict, but right now, truly is Syria that mobilizes. And so when you're only looking at it solely through the lens of a religious um, theology, then you miss the root grievances, which religion is being used as a cover to kind of uh, mobilize people to take action. But very often, it's the actual source or the root that's calling people. You mentioned letting religious leaders and their communities develop their own solutions so they're not quite so Western hallmark. And uh, you give us an example, Uganda. Tell us what happened there with support from the U.S. Embassy. Yeah, it was um, actually a very, uh, you know, inspiring um, story, particularly when I was able to interact with the youth. Um, and it started off from, you know, what we see with most young people, a personal story, something that affected their lives directly. And um, the, you know, co-founders of the organization in Uganda, um, who are also fellows with our Generation Change program, uh, you know, had been part of an attack. It was the first attack uh, in Uganda of Al-Shabaab outside of Somalia. Uh, and, you know, these were two young men who had gone to attend a soccer game and uh, you know the blast happened and what really struck them and, and I still remember the words of the co-founder Ahmed Haji when he was telling me that you know as bad as it was to be part of the violence and to be attacked and to be rushed over to the hospital and he was explaining that when he woke up you know he didn't know if he had AIDS because of all the blood transfusion and, and there was a numbness as he was just you know really focusing on surviving what had happened to him and he said that the real motivation to take action came when he turned on the television and he was listening to the news report of the attack and it was being claimed in the name of Islam. And as a Muslim in Uganda, you know, he saw himself as a minority and he felt very much alien to the messaging that they were claiming to be doing in the name of Islam for this type of violence. And that's why he co-founded the organization with his other friend who was also part of the attack um, to really proactively work in Uganda to represent the Muslim community, but also to really reach out to other youth as well as to imams to say that if the religion is being used, we can't completely ignore it and say, you know, this isn't us, Islam is a religion of peace, but we actually had to take proactive action, and that's exactly what he did. He took proactive action, founded the organization, has been active, reaching out both to Muslim youth but also to religious scholars to make sure that they're emphasizing the messages of nonviolence. Is the U.S. Embassy put support widely known and yet not a handicap? I think that this, you know, the way that the Public Affairs Office engaged with Ahmed and his um, and his um, organization, and also the way they had supported the formation of Generation Change, is truly exemplary of really taking a back seat. You know, they never required um, any type of branding. Uh, you know, they were um, very much following the lead. In this case, which is, you know, Uganda um, being associated with the U.S. Embassy, wouldn't raise flags um, the way it might do it might do in some other countries, um, you know, the uh, partners decided to use the embassy connections as a way to kind of promote themselves as well. And so it ended up turning out very, um, you know, being mutually beneficial, uh, but very much, uh, you know, I, I spoke with the public affairs officer many times who helped kind of launch Generation Change. And there was just a real understanding of letting these youth really take the lead in terms of any marketing, any discussion, any branding or any link with the embassy, which is very much 
much what I advocate in my article. We should always take the lead from the partners uh, because oftentimes they not only know the problems, but they're very well aware of the solutions. What they're often missing is the resources and the technical assist assistance to implement the solutions. And so, you know, I, I'm always worried when we come in with prescriptions thinking we know the solutions before we truly, truly engage. In Kenya and Nigeria, you also found activists who see religion in a wider social context. With the appeal of extremism arguably stronger, where employment opportunities and the economy in general are weaker. Talk first about the Nairobi's Integrated Initiatives for Community Empowerment Program, IICEP. Well, I think one of the things that is important to know, um, and you know, the organization Mercy Corps has actually done some really good studies about this, is that we're not actually finding a correlation between um, jobs and unemployment and the rise of violent extremism. You know, the, it's very commonly believed that there is a direct link, but most of the research and the interviews are really finding that it's difficult to show um, any type of correlation between the two. In fact, we find, you know, particularly if you're looking at um, ex-combatants who are coming out of Syria, they tend to be more from the middle class, and they actually tend to be very highly educated, which matches my experience um, in Libya. It wasn't always, uh, you know, the impoverished that were joining extremist groups. In many ways, it is the middle class who can, you know, be appeal, uh, who can be recruited through the social and the political grievances. Um, but what we're seeing in Kenya is this, you know, understanding that if you, that what is being offered oftentimes by some of the extremists is a complete different way of life. And, you know, they're being offered community, and in some cases, they're being offered money and jobs. And so what we're seeing with some of the organizations, both in Nigeria and Kenya, who are connected to um, Generation Change through their, their work, um, is very much trying to take that proactive stance of providing employment, but also providing community. I think that's one of the things that the organizations we work with are doing very well, is they're recognizing that youth need a place to go after school, that youth need to be engaged, whether it's through sports or through jobs, but really need to be engaged and feel a sense of community because that's the other big offer that extremists often provide. Uh, another example you give is Nigeria's Youth Coalition Against Terrorism, also with U.S. and U.K. funding. Say yes. more about them. Yes. And so, I mean, the, the organization um, in Nigeria is also, you know, again, taking a different approach in the particular area that we're seeing um, in Nigeria is one of the biggest issues has been corruption and, you know, being able to access basic services. And so through this coalition, youth are able to find a voice. Um, what we've also find, found is that they're very savvy in terms of communication and media. And so what they've been able to do is really provide messaging proactively. And again, not the type of messaging that we would see coming out of the West, but messaging that is very much local, um, not only to the region, but also to the context of Nigeria. And I think that's why they've really been successful in attracting youth to join their coalition. One recent report shows religion often most influential in times of social upheaval as people seek a sense of identity, community, larger purpose. Back in the U.S., you found religious collaboration leading to more faith community-funded development projects that also may ease the social and economic pressures on young people that ISIS seeks to recruit. Talk about that. What we're seeing is that oftentimes, um, you know, faith is a really important way to, again, mobilize people to take action. Uh, and 
one of the things that we found is that most of the times when we've been interviewing people who've come back, it's not necessarily, as I mentioned before, ideology, but it is that quest for action. It's that quest to be able to take change. Um, and oftentimes what I've heard from young people is that they feel there's no other way. And it's not always just extremism, but there's an understanding that violence is really the only way to be heard or to make change. And so what we often try to do, and I think religious leaders do this naturally, is to look at you know projects that can be funded through the community that lead to the same type of change that youth need to be able to see without having to resort to violence. And the hope is that through enough of these type of projects, you create the muscle memory that nonviolence is a way to be able to make change. And again, you know, one of the things that we found is people of faith and communities of faith um, are the ones who are, you know, most likely to be able to come together. Um, and, you know, whether it's through the mosque or, you know, another example there, you really see this is through the Quakers. They've been able to develop everything from education programs to nonviolence training, um, all using faith as a motive, mobilizing factor. Several effective ways to mobilize religious leaders were outlined at a 2015 conclave called by the Network of Traditional and Religious Peacemakers. One key, as you mentioned earlier, was to engage these people from the earliest stages of a program's development. But you warned that great care must be taken to choose the right leaders, the most credible in their communities, even if not always the ones with whom Westerners are most comfortable. Say more about that. I think this is one of the most trickiest things. I mean, you know, when we enter communities, oftentimes um, we ask the question, who holds moral authority? And, you know, that's not always just in terms of development, but also in the security sector. You know, who holds the moral authority? Is it military? Is it the police? Who can actually influence people on the streets? And oftentimes the answer will always be religious leaders as a key element. No matter how secular the society, you still have that as a voice. Now, the challenge is, is that when we're looking at global partnerships, a lot of the religious leaders who actually hold moral authority, meaning that they can change people's minds um, and influence their behavior, may not always agree with our foreign policy or may not always agree with our economic strategies in their countries. And so, you know, when we look for people who only agree with a Western agenda, we often may actually miss those who have moral authority. So, again, it's a very tricky one because we often and look for people who are like-minded and who share our values. But, you know, if the primary message is nonviolence, then it may be worth really looking at who actually would have the most influence, even if they don't necessarily agree with our policies in the Middle East or our policies um, on economic development or even on climate change. You know, we have to look about what are our primary non-negotiables. Um, you know, my biggest concern is when we do find a religious leader who, you know, says or who, who subscribes to a lot of the Western agenda, we often then become so close to them, I, I call it hug them to death. We often hug them to death where then they no longer have the le legitimacy because they're see their voice is seen being co-opted by a foreign agenda. And it's, it's something that's very sensitive and, you know, even some of the top leaders, if they get mischaracterized um, as having Western agendas, can completely lose uh, their, their own constituents and their own base. But we do have to accept, uh, I, I think, if I read you correctly, people who disagree with our views, even on basic social issues, the rights of women, for instance, uh, they may be a more stabilizing force in their area uh, than, uh, you know, the, the activists that we more naturally are inclined to. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's really important to understand is that what we're talking about when we're talking about introducing peace and conflict resolution and stability into countries is really long term. And, you know, particularly to, you know, what we've seen all the studies show that change that is dramatic, such as revolutions, tend to fall back into violence and to fall back into instability. It's really slow, gradual, incremental change. So even if we are making an alliance, for example, on something that I feel very passionately about, which is women's rights, um, to have messaging of combating violent extremism, understanding that this is the first step in a relationship or developing the trust. So eventually, as the relationship develops, we will be able to address women's issues, but it might not be the first issue that we have to have a complete um, agreement on because, again, gradual incremental change will actually be more sustainable. But even in the short term, if I read you correctly, uh, you stress the importance of uh, engaging women in Islamic communities who are often seen incorrectly by Westerners as powerless or worse. Say more about that part of the larger effort. I think that women are showing more and more how absolutely critical they are um, across different sectors, but you know, very specifically in fighting violent extremism. Uh, you know, women hold a lot of power that's more informal, and so you know, oftentimes you won't see them necessarily in a visible light, but in the background they're making a lot of decisions, particularly as it has to do with education for um, for the youth in the communities. Uh, and what we're seeing is that you know, extremist groups are targeting very young. I mean, they keep going younger at one point it was high school, then we started getting indicators that was elementary school. We now have a lot of interviews from refugee camps that say it's starting as young as kindergarten and, you know, kind of preschool age. And so women are the natural people to make sure that that messaging isn't infiltrating into the youth and that it isn't infiltrating into curriculums um, through humanitarian aid or other means, which is sometimes how it is being promoted. And, you know, they can catch it. You know, I call them early detection warning signs. Women are the natural early detection warning signs who can ring the bell. Now, the challenge is for us, like, like you mentioned, people tend to assume women don't have power. You know, if a woman's veiled, they tend to assume that she's part of the problem or she's a victim. Um, so we often don't hear the bells as they ring them. So we have to show tolerance as well as firmness in, in dealing with the, the, the subtleties of this and, and who the, the real long-term allies may be. Absolutely. I think that we, you know, just by paying attention and being present and really listening and again, focusing on what partnership means, not treating people like contractors, I think that our programs would shift dramatically if we just, you know, really truly partnered with groups on the ground. Manal Omar, thank you. Thank you. Manal Omar is Associate Vice President of the Center for Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington also a fellow with the Truman National Security Project, and an inaugural fellow with Foreign Policy Interrupted. Her essay in the new WPJ winner issue is headlined, Partnering Up, How to Work with Religious Leaders to Counter Violent Extremism. Since we spoke, many Muslims and their religious leaders around the world were shocked and offended by President Trump's controversial executive order, unanimously suspended by a federal appeals court that would have blocked immigration from Syria and most all travel to the U.S. from there and six other Muslim-majority nations. Reports that the State Department would now narrow its countering violent extremism program to countering radical Islamic extremism also prompted Muslim community groups in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Dearborn, Michigan to turn down a million dollars in federal grants meant to fight terrorist recruitment.
Also featured in the new WPJ winter issue, interrupted, written, and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the brinksmanship of Vladimir Putin, on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the future of feminism in China. World Policy on Air is a production World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.